Hello, and welcome to the story of Rhode Island, the podcast that tells you the story of Rhode Island's fascinating history. In last week's episode, we saw Rhode Island help drive their fellow colonists towards declaring independence from the British Empire. Unfortunately, they're about to find out that while declaring independence is one thing, defending it will be a far more difficult task to achieve. As we jump into episode five, we see a group of Rhode Islanders looking out towards the rough winter waters of the Narragansett Bay. With an ominous overcast sky hovering above the coastal towns, people begin pointing towards the water. Their eyes grow wide, and a feeling of terror is imprinted on their faces as they begin rapidly making their way towards their homes. Entering the bay on this December afternoon in 1776 is a massive fleet of ships from Britain's Royal Navy. Making up the intimidating armada are seven ships of line, four frigates, and 70 transports. As they sail past Connecticut Island, waves slam up against the front of their ships, almost as if the bay itself is attempting to keep them from their towns. Then, the fleet turns east as it rounds the northern tip of Connecticut Island, and eventually heads back south down the Middle Channel, where they anchor about four miles north of Newport. With their large cannons pointed directly at Rhode Island's most prosperous city, the British make it clear where they are heading. The American patriots who have yet to evacuate Aquidneck Island hastily gather the few possessions they can carry and begin making their way north into Bristol, while others head east into Tiverton. And knowing that they are drastically outnumbered by the invading enemy force, the local militia unit also decides to evacuate the island. And so, the same group of people who were celebrating the Declaration of Independence just months earlier are now running for their lives. With the British Navy rapidly approaching their shores, it's now clear to all that the British Empire has no intentions of just allowing their prized colonies to slip away. Their tyrannical king will do everything he can to crush the colonist rebellion and bring these subjects back into submission. This will not only lead the feverishly defiant city of Newport to be captured by the British military, but also thrust Rhode Island into the heat of the fighting, a reality their very own Quaker general, Nathaniel Green, has already gotten a sour taste of. Over the next year and a half, the people around Narragansett Bay are about to realize that their war has just begun and that there's still far more blood that needs to be shed before they'll be able to remove the chains of the British Empire. The story of the Rhode Islanders defending their newly established independence at home, while Nathaniel Green fights the enemy throughout the other American colonies, is what we'll cover in this week's episode of the Story of Rhode Island podcast. It's the morning of December 8th, 1776, and Major General Richard Prescott of the British Army steps onto the western shores of Middletown. General Prescott, even more than the other generals who have been dragged across the Atlantic Ocean to squash the colonist rebellion, despises the Americans' fight for independence. It was only a couple of months earlier when he was released from captivity after being taken prisoner by the rebels back in 1775. So as he makes his way onto the mainlands of Aquidneck Island, he does so with his own personal vendetta against the colonists. With his red British overcoat flowing behind him and his gold-padded shoulders resting beside his serious face, he looks out towards the rolling farmlands in search of the enemy. But with nothing more than a quiet countryside looking back at him, he finds himself disappointed in the lack of resistance put up by the Rhode Islanders, a group of people known for their violent attacks against the British Empire. 
with the coast clear, Prescott orders his troops forward while instructing a group of grenadiers and light infantry to clear the northern tip of the island. After several hours, the soldiers return with a small collection of local patriot prisoners and news that anyone else on the island are either loyalists or Quakers who have remained neutral due to their religious beliefs. When it's clear that the island is theirs, Prescott orders the rest of the troops partaking in the bloodless invasion to land in Newport. And before long, the man who General Howe has assigned to oversee the invasion of Aquidneck, Lieutenant General Henry Clinton, along with 7,000 British and Hessian soldiers, begin making their way into the city and fortifying it for their defenses. By the end of the day, numerous British ships are anchored throughout Narragansett Bay, British and Hessian troops fill the island of Aquinnick, and the most prosperous city in the state of Rhode Island is captured without a shot being fired. Sitting at her home in Coventry on a cold December night is the beautiful Katie Green, wife of General Nathaniel Green. Resting in Katie's right arm is their soon-to-be one-year-old son, George Washington Green, one of the many children and places that have been named after the man leading the American forces in the Revolutionary War. While holding George, Katie reads a letter from her husband that arrived just minutes earlier. The words used by Green in his letter speak to the dire situation the Americans find themselves in. He tells his wife, quote, Fortune seems to frown upon the cause of freedom. A combination of evils are pressing in on us from all sides. Unquote. Green's assessment of the American situation is no exaggeration. As he writes to Katie, he does so sitting in Pennsylvania with an army that's on the verge of being defeated. Their woes started back in the summer, just shortly after the Americans declared independence in July. With the force numbering over 30,000 men, the British generals knew that by taking New York, it would enable them to cut off the New England colonies from the others, helping them to put a speedy end to this inconvenient rebellion. Therefore, in August of 1776, the British invasion of America's largest city began. The Continental Army attempted to defend New York, but proved entirely incapable of the task. One of the most devastating losses at the campaign was at the siege of Fort Washington, a failure that Nathaniel Green was primarily responsible for. The general from Rhode Island made the decision to try to defend the fort, but quickly realized that the army was not equipped to do so. By the end of the fighting, 3,000 Americans were taken prisoner, two of them almost being Washington and Green themselves, an outcome that would have almost certainly ended the Americans' rebellion. And for the next three weeks, the Continental Army was forced to retreat all the way through New Jersey, while the enemy remained hot on their trail. It wasn't until they crossed the Delaware River into Pennsylvania when the British finally gave up the chase. And it's in that same spot where Green still finds himself as his wife reads a letter from their home in Coventry. Katie knows that her husband's depressing words all too accurately describe the state of their rebellion. The letter continues to state how Green just hopes that this is just, quote, the dark part of the night, which generally is before the day, unquote. With their husband beaten down by the burdens of war, the general's wife also becomes consumed with the feeling of dread and gloom. Just as she puts the letter on the table beside her, young George begins to cry, so she starts walking him around the living room while rubbing his back. While pacing back and forth, she thinks about the difficult situation her husband and her fellow Rhode Islanders now find themselves in. Like so many other societies throughout history, they are now a group of people fighting a far more powerful foe in the hopes that they will be able to build a new society of their own. She only hopes that they will be one of the few who actually succeed. 
Fortunately, the Americans do find a way to push through their current bout of darkness, one that although is not the last they'll face during this long war, is certainly one of the most troubling. And it begins just weeks after Katie reads the letter from her husband. In late December, George Washington, Nathaniel Green, and the other Continental generals decide to launch an incredibly risky surprise attack against the Hessian troops on the other side of the Delaware River who are guarding the towns of Trenton and Princeton. If the American army were to lose the battle, then it might just end up bringing their rebellion to an abrupt end. But with the people's faith in the rebellion dwindling rapidly, they know that unless something is done right now, then the fire driving the patriot spirit might just fizzle out completely. So with the rebellion on the line, the Continental Army launches their daring attack and ends up defeating the Hessian troops at both Trenton and Princeton. Green and the rest of the Continental generals who partake in the battle fight wonderfully, and it's a monumental turning point for the Americans' fight for independence. When news of the attack makes its way back to Rhode Island, the colonists celebrate their newfound hope. As the months pass, and with the faith in their glorious cause growing every single day, a group of Rhode Islanders decide to launch a daring mission of their own, one that will lead them into the heart of enemy territory. The men only hope that they too will see the same type of success that their fellow patriots were blessed with at Trenton and Princeton. It's a late July night in 1777, and a group of 40 Rhode Island militiamen and whaleboats secretly make their way east across the Narragansett Bay. With their eyes constantly on the lookout for British ships, the soldiers hope that their muffled doors will allow them to make it to Aquidneck Island without being noticed. Ever since Aquidneck was turned over to British and Hessian troops last December, the towns of Portsmouth, Middletown, and Newport have grown increasingly torn and tattered. Houses are looted daily, trees are constantly cut down to be used as firewood, and the Newport Colony House has been turned into a stable for the troops' horses. However, an important piece of intelligence has just been gathered about one of the leading generals on the island, the despised Richard Prescott, and now the Rhode Islanders believe that they have a chance for retaliation. It's come to their attention that at night General Prescott typically leaves the well-guarded city of Newport and spends his evenings at the Overing family farm in the Middletown countryside. And it's at this more vulnerable location where the men and whaleboats are heading to on this summer night. The Overing House sits on a hill about a mile east of the bay, right along the West Road, or what we know as Route 114 today. Due to the house's location, the Rhode Islanders believe that they can sneak into Middletown, capture General Prescott, and bring him back to Warwick without getting caught. And their mission isn't just a petty scheme to get back at the British, but one with great strategic value. By capturing Prescott, they're confident that they'll be able to exchange him for General Charles Lee one of America's most experienced generals who was taken prisoner last December. Leading this daring mission is William Barton, a former hat maker who has since been named a captain in the Rhode Island militia. Like so many other Americans, Barton has put his profession on hold in an effort to defend his independence. Eventually, Barton realizes that they are approaching the shores of Middletown, so he signals his men to prepare for landing. With their bodies crouched down low and their guns in their hands, the men land the boats on the beach and make their way east towards the Overing House. When they finally arrive, they see that there's only one soldier on guard, so Barton signals his men forward. The Rhode Islanders cleverly walk up to the guard, posing as British soldiers in search of deserters, but then promptly take the man prisoner. Then, they burst into the home and begin searching for General Prescott. While making their way upstairs, Barton hears Prescott yell, quote, What is the matter? Unquote. Instead of answering the general's question, the men just grab Prescott and begin tying up his arms. 
Knowing that they still need to make it back home without being noticed, they rush out of the house while pushing Prescott back towards the whale boats that await them on the beach. After making it to the boats, they sneak back across the bay unnoticed and arrive at Warwick Neck the next morning. Prescott, not being able to hide his appreciation for the daring scheme, tells Barton, quote, Sir, you have made a damn bold push tonight, unquote. With a smirk on his face, Barton responds by saying, quote, We have been fortunate, unquote. While any type of respect from the enemy deserves to be appreciated, just calling the mission a damn bold push doesn't even come close to describing what Barton and his men have just accomplished. The fact that they've been able to sneak across Narragansett Bay and back without being spotted by the enemy ships, while also capturing one of the leading generals on Aquidneck Island, a man in charge of thousands of troops, is miraculous. One historian has called it, quote, the most spectacular and successful special operation of the war, unquote. Along with being spectacular, it also proves to be strategically valuable as well, because Prescott is eventually exchanged for General Lee, returning one of America's most experienced generals to the Continental Army. And these Rhode Islanders are not the only ones to demonstrate their abilities to defend their independence, as Nathaniel Green follows up his historic victories at Trenton and Princeton with some accomplishments of his own. It starts in September of 1777, at the Battle of Brandywine in Pennsylvania, when General Green uses his growing military experience to prevent a company of American soldiers from being routed and taken prisoner by the opposing British forces. Then, only about a month later, Green is given the major responsibility of leading half of the Americans' assault forces in an attack against General Howe's troops in Germantown. Although the Americans technically lose the battle, they fight wonderfully for over three hours, proving that they can hold their own against the British troops. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, Green goes on to drag the Continental Army out of a disastrous situation at their winter encampment in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. He does so by executing a highly complicated foraging mission that prevents a countless number of soldiers from either starving or freezing to death. General Washington is so impressed by Green that along with keeping him as a field general, he also makes him the Army's new quartermaster general, a job that has been completely mismanaged for years. The role is absolutely critical to the American Army as it ensures their troops are supplied with food and clothing needed to outlast the British enemy. Over the next several months, Green relies on his resourcefulness and his endless work ethic to turn the once broken department into a well-oiled machine. And around the same time that Green is showing how much of an asset he is to the Continental Army, the Americans are able to sign a treaty with Great Britain's biggest rival, the French. So as the War for Independence progresses through 1778, the people around Narragansett Bay are beginning to believe that they have a real shot of winning this war, an outcome that they are directly contributing to both at home and throughout America via their very own Quaker general. On the other hand, the spirits of the British generals are not so high, as they're constantly being asked by their government officials, what is taking them so long to squash this rebellion? So with frustrations continuing to mount, the British forces on Aquidneck Island decide that it's time to strike back. They'll do so by making their way deeper into Rhode Island and launching a violent raid on two of the towns. By the spring of 1778, the land that makes up the towns of Warren and Bristol, Rhode Island, have been owned by a number of different societies. It began shortly after King Philip's War, when the Poconocet people were forced to hand over their ancient homeland to the Plymouth Colony. But when Massachusetts absorbed Plymouth into their colony in 1691, ownership of the land was once again transferred. Then, Rhode Island annexed the land for Massachusetts, along with the towns of Tiverton and Little Compton to the southeast and Cumberland to the north. 
While being exchanged from colony to colony throughout the 17th and early 18th century, the land was part of the British Empire. But with the colonies having declared independence, it's now part of the new nation the Americans are still in the process of creating. Unfortunately, the towns on these lands are about to experience the devastating effects that inevitably come with war. After hearing rumors that the Continental Forces in Providence are planning to attack Newport, the British decide to launch a series of preemptive raids against the towns of Warren and Bristol. Their raids begin to unfold on a quiet spring morning in May of 1778, as a group of 500 British and Hessian troops depart from the northern end of Aquidneck Island and begin making their way north up Narragansett Bay. At 3.30 a.m., British Lieutenant Colonel John Campbell leads his men in boats past Papasquash Point, where militia Captain Gideon Westcott and his artillerymen sleep at their camp. Before long, the British and Hessian troops arrive at the western shores of Bristol County, right in between the towns of Warren and Bristol. As they begin making their way inland, Westcott discovers the invasion taking place and immediately orders his gunners to fire warning shots. At first, the invading troops turn their heads south towards the sound of cannon fire coming from Papasquash Point, but end up redirecting their vision to the west when they hear alarm guns being fired at Warwick Neck as well. As the smoke from the cannons drifts up towards the sky, local citizens from nearby towns begin running for safety. Lieutenant Campbell responds immediately by capturing Westcott and his artillerymen at Papasquash Point while also destroying their 18-pound cannon. With the local militia now taken care of, the British and Hessian soldiers make their way north towards the undefended town of Warren. By the time they arrive, the sun has just begun creeping over the horizon. Campbell decides to leave a group of Hessian soldiers in the town, while one of his other regiments heads east to secure the bridge at the Kikimuit River. Before long, the Hessian soldiers in Warren see a cloud of smoke rising from the east, as British soldiers begin setting fire to anything that might prove to be advantageous for the Continental Army. They burn 80 flatboats, three armed American ships, several buildings, and even the Kikimuit River Bridge itself. By 8 in the morning, the British troops return from the successful mission at the Kikimuit River, line up alongside the Hessians, and begin making their way down Warren's Main Street. As the invading troops plunder houses throughout the town, one of the town's loyalists tells the soldiers how the general store is often used to provide the American army with ammunition and food. A group of British soldiers promptly loot the store and then proceed to set it on fire. With the building engulfed in flames, the fire quickly grows out of control and ends up spreading to a neighboring Baptist meeting house, parsonage, and six other houses as well. As if that wasn't enough, the soldiers destroy another armed ship anchored off of the coast of Warren as well. Campbell, deciding that he's wreaked enough havoc in Warren, begins leading his troops south towards Bristol. While trekking through the countryside, the invading forces hear bullets whizzing above their heads. The bullets are coming from a small unit of American troops that General John Sullivan sent from Providence when he heard the alarm guns being fired earlier that morning. Knowing that they stand no chance of defeating the British and Hessians head-on, the Americans fire at the enemy troops from behind trees and rock walls while repositioning themselves constantly. This style of war, known today as guerrilla warfare, is the same fighting style that the Narragansett and Poconocet warriors used during King Philip's War. Thanks to Benjamin Church, the man from Little Compton who we watch popularize these highly effective military tactics in Season 1, the colonists now leverage this indigenous style of war to defend their newly acquired independence. Unfortunately, the number of soldiers sent out by Sullivan isn't nearly enough, and by mid-morning, the British soldiers arrive in Bristol. The town goes on to suffer the same fate as Warren, as British and Hessian soldiers go on to burn down the Bristol County Jail, a church, and 19 houses, while also taking 30 locals as prisoners. 
Eventually, Campbell determines that he's achieved his mission, so he and his men reboard their flatboats and head back to Aquidneck Island. As they leave the mainland, flames littered throughout the towns of Warren and Bristol can be seen flickering behind them. In total, the British and Hessian troops managed to burn over 40 buildings, a handful of armed ships, and a substantial amount of American supplies. On top of that, they've also managed to take 60 locals as prisoners as well. For the next couple of weeks, the man up in Providence who was put in charge of defending Rhode Island, General Sullivan, is ridiculed for not sending more troops to protect the towns. Needless to say, General Sullivan and the local citizens are furious by the raids and anxious for retaliation. They just hope that at some point they'll be given the resources that they need to strike back at the enemy sitting comfortably on Aquidneck Island. While sitting at his headquarters in Providence, a frustrated General Sullivan massages the back of his head. For weeks now, he's been plagued with a nagging headache that seems as though it'll never pass. The 38-year-old from New Hampshire wonders if he's sick, but deep down knows that these are simply the side effects that come with the stressful war. And the Revolutionary War certainly hasn't been easy on Sullivan, as he not only failed to send troops to defend the towns of Warren and Bristol, but was also one of the generals who experienced the humiliating defeats that took place in New York a couple of years ago. After a series of setbacks, Sullivan is now looking to repair his tattered reputation. While still rubbing the back of his head, a man suddenly delivers him an urgent message from General Washington's in White Plains, New York. Sullivan quickly grabs a letter, cuts its seal, and begins reading. As his eyes rapidly make their way down the paper, a feeling of excitement floods his body. The letter is informing the general that the French Navy has just arrived off the coast of New York and that they are ready to launch their first major joint operation with the Americans at either New York or Newport. The letter continues to state how Sullivan should begin preparing for battle and work with the surrounding states to round up a force of 5,000 soldiers. Sullivan is thrilled by the news because it looks as though he might just be given the opportunity to redeem himself by working with the French to retake Rhode Island's most prosperous city. And in just a little while, his hopes will be confirmed when he finds out that Newport will in fact be the location for their joint operation. Before long, the French Navy will make its way into Narragansett Bay, and Sullivan will prepare for the retaking of Newport by moving his forces onto Aquidneck Island. As the French begin bombarding the enemy's defenses, and with the British ships being blown to pieces throughout the bay, it begins to look as though their plan will be a great success. Unfortunately, Mother Nature will end up rearing her unexpected head into the picture, and in a matter of days, everything will be thrown into disarray. Sullivan will watch, as not only his mission is put into jeopardy, but his entire army as well. But that's a story for next time, on next week's episode of the Story of Rhode Island podcast. Thank you for listening to the Story of Rhode Island. If you are enjoying the podcast, please be sure to leave a review and to follow the podcast as well. If you'd like to learn more about today's episode and others as well, you can visit storyofrhodeisland.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Story of Rhode Island or on Facebook at the Story of Rhode Island podcast. Thank you again and see you next time.